music and song, and, and song tonight in particular. Thank you for that. Psalm 119, Psalm 119. Thank you, Derek, for reading through this stanza as we have been working our way through this great psalm, the Mount Everest of the Bible. And we are now just a couple of stanzas away from completing this psalm and thankful to the Lord for uh, the privilege it has been to uh, preach through this psalm. We are now at the psalm, verses 161 through 168, that is in the acrostic of this chapter would have the Hebrew letter S-C-H-I-N, shin, as the beginning letter for each verse of this stanza in the acrostic, in the original language. But we see tonight in this stanza, in this paragraph, we see, first of all, reverence for God's word gives us the right perspective. Reverence for God's word gives us the right perspective. Look at verse 161 in Psalm 119. Princes have persecuted me without a cause, but my heart standeth in awe of thy word. I rejoice at thy word as one that findeth great spoil. It's amazing how the word of God helps us get the right perspective. God's word gives us reality. There is a lot of fantasy. I'm not here to be a big critic of everything that that goes on in the entertainment world and media, but we, we can live our lives in a fantasy land. And there are people that they spend all their lives looking for some far-fetched dream or idea that's just a fantasy. I can pretend that I'm Spider-Man like I did when I was a little boy. But if I were, if I were, I mean, I could, I dressed in my little Spider-Man costume, but as soon as I would try to climb a skyscraper in Indianapolis, my mom and dad would be like, what are you doing? As soon as I tried to spin web out of my arm and my wrist, they'd be like, what, what, what is that? Marshmallows or, you know, or, or that, what are that, that stuff that you can, yeah, silly string. Thank you. Well, we bought our, our boys, years ago, we bought our boys this contraption that supposedly was going to shoot the web out of their wrists. And I, I don't think it worked, but maybe one time. And I have no idea uh, what they do in the movies. It's probably all CGI or whatever, but people live in fantasy worlds. And they think that that is reality. We've often talked about, I know there are various factors, and I know there are different reasons with people's lives, and living on the big screen, but isn't it a tragedy how many young people grow up in Hollywood, grow up on the big screen, and their lives are just full of tragedy? And we've often talked about this, and even through the years, just with my mom and dad, and even around the house a little bit with the the kids, sometimes we've wondered if they live in a fantasy world, they live on screen, and they can't live in their real life what they try to portray on screen. And we have people who live that way. They think that reality is what is portrayed on TV, on television, in the media, in the entertainment world. And many times it is so far from reality. 
And it becomes very dangerous when it comes to morals. Because on the screen, there's all kinds of sins that can be participated in. And in that fantasy world, there's no consequences, or there's minimal consequences, or you can lie, cheat, and steal, and be immoral, and you can get away with it, and you can have great success, and there's no accountability. That's not reality. God's Word gives us reality. God's Word speaks of reality. And we see that this perspective that we must have for this life comes from reverence for love, from love for God's Word, reverence for the Word of God, including the right perspective of persecution. Princes have persecuted me without a cause. How many times has the psalmist mentioned afflictions, persecutors, enemies, foes, those who are bringing persecution? When we have God's word supreme in our hearts, then even harsh and critical words of those that are opposed to God will have less effect. doesn't mean that there isn't a human side to persecution, that the things that are said, the things that are done, that they don't cause pain, that there aren't human feelings, that there aren't things that are said and done that are hurtful. But we can have a perspective, a right perspective, even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of opposition, a perspective that is eternal, that is heavenly, so that in our lives, as we are commanded in Matthew 5 and verse 10, as we are promised there, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's never easy, but it helps in the midst of suffering for righteousness' sake, suffering for Christ's sake, It helps us to claim the promises of God's word. And humanly speaking, it is, yes, hard. There are real feelings. The psalmist talks about being betrayed, his own friend being his foe, maybe sometimes referring to Saul, who would come after him in some of the harshest ways and treat him as if he were some wild animal, a beast out in the field, wanting to hunt him down and to kill him because he was the heir to the throne. Unjust cause, injustice. We can have a heavenly, eternal perspective when persecution comes. It will help us to endure. It doesn't mean that there isn't pain, doesn't mean that there aren't difficulties, but it does help us to endure for Christ's sake. First Timothy, excuse me, Second Timothy chapter two in verse number twelve reminds us of this as well. If we suffer we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. We can consider heaven, that there is a day ahead that if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. That perspective helps us in the midst of suffering. First Peter chapter number three. First Peter chapter three also speaks to this right perspective a heavenly perspective, an eternal perspective in the midst of suffering. 1 Peter 3 and verse 14, But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, 
And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. He goes on in verse 15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We need to be prepared to be a testimony, to share the truth, to evangelize, to be able to, that literally that word in verse 15 is apologia, from which we get our word apologetics. We need to know why we believe what we believe. We need to be able to give a reason for the hope that lies within us. But again, that reminds us of the eternal heavenly perspective. The realities of God's word help us in dealing with persecution. And we are, I know, starting to see a level of persecution that we've never seen here in the United States until recently. The LGBTQ plus movement and the attacks on the First Amendment, people that are getting arrested and dragged out of their homes as if they're violent criminals just because they spoke out or spoke up against abortion. We could go on and on with the examples. A baker out in California who refuses to write a customized message on the top of a cake and is now, I think, being sued for the third or the fourth time and is still in litigation to the point he had to close down his shop and he can only sell his goods online, a godly lady up in the state of Washington who had to have her flower shop shut down because she was fined hundreds of thousands of dollars simply because she would not do flowers for a same-sex union, false marriage. She refused and they shut her down. She ended up retiring, sold her business, We could go on and on with the examples. We don't know where the next thing is going to come. We're seeing some things on the horizon, not to be a fear monger. But we know that persecution is promised. And some of us experience that to some degree, maybe at our workplace, because of the stand that we take. Because our our refusal to use this whole pronoun game that's going on. Some of the stands that we have to take, just simply the fact that we believe a certain way, go to a certain church... It results in a certain amount of animosity, but at the same time, and we've just experienced this even recently, they'll come to you when they need prayer. They'll come to you when they need help. They'll say things like, well, I'm not a particularly religious person, or something along that line, but they know who has principle of life. They they know who has the right perspective, and that's because of the grace of God, because of God's word at work in our hearts. And as we reverence God's word, as we love God's word, he helps us have the right perspective of persecution. And then there's also the right perspective of contentment. Verse 162, I rejoice at thy word as one that findeth great spoil. When God's word is our joy, we don't look for satisfaction elsewhere. This is such an important lesson in a day and age in which we have so much entertainment and pleasure at our fingertips. And I don't want to harp on this, but we are in an entertainment-saturated culture. And again, I come back to when I was a school principal, kids always wanted education to be fun. And there's only so many games you can come up with for algebra and chemistry 
and physics, and even when it comes to dates and times and names for history, there's only so much you can do. You can do various review games, and there's various ways, but education is fun. Learning is fun. But it doesn't mean that we just turn education into this entertainment world. And I would get all kinds of advertisements for all these math games and science games and vocabulary games. And they would send me these advertisements and they would supposedly increase the, the reading percentages in our school by so many numbers each year if we use their system and on and on and on it went, right? And I, I know there were some legitimate uses that uh, we even took advantage of one in particular that was, was good, that wasn't just a game, but all these different things that were tried to, to be sold to us to, to make education fun. And I wanted students, and to this day, even as a pastor, I want our people and you are a well-taught people. You love the Word of God. The fact that so many showed up on a Sunday night uh, is, is uh, to your credit and, and, and gl glory to God. There are churches that don't even have Sunday night and Wednesday night services, or they don't even have but maybe 35 40% of their congregation from Sunday morning show up on Sunday night. Thank you for, for being here. But you are a well-taught people, and I want, as a pastor, I want there to be a love for the Word of God in the hearts of our people. That the Word of God is loved and it's reverenced in such a way that we desire to be under the teaching and the preaching of God's Word. We desire to be in the Word of God. That we desire to learn more and to know more and to be constantly and regularly exposed to the Word of God because our hearts are wicked and we are so prone to wander. We drive down the road and we look for signs. We use our Google Maps. We were today looking for a particular place and uh, the person that we were uh, trying to, to, to meet up with sent me a, a, a pin and it just had the, 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 the geography, the, the degrees, such degree north and such degree west or east. And I was trying to pull it up on Google Maps. I even gave it over to Josiah, and he went out to Google Earth. And we're like, where is this place? You know, we, we have all these signs, and we have all these things we look for so that we know where we're going, so that we don't get lost. We arrive at the right place at the right time, and we go to where we should go. And we expect that for driving, for traveling. But then we will go through life, and we'll ignore the signs and the warnings in the promises, the principles, the commands of God's word that show us the path of life that shines more and more unto the perfect day as uh, Proverbs reminds us. As we talked about when we were looking at the day spring, the sun of righteousness and the glory of God and the light of God's word and Jesus Christ being the light of the world. And there's so much joy in the word of God that we should be able to say like the psalmist I rejoice at thy word as one that findeth great spoil which gives us the right perspective about our stuff that helps us be content contentment is not a trait that is promoted in our culture today as a matter of fact and this isn't necessarily a 
a criticism of the Christmas season and those who, who love Christmas. It's not my point. But isn't it interesting that Thanksgiving, it used to be, what, the Black Friday sales would start early on a Friday morning, and now they start, you can get Black Friday sales November 1st. How is it Black Friday if it's November 1st, right? Now it's Cyber Monday also that's added on. And I understand that Cyber Monday had more sales than Black Friday this year. And incredible. But then, of course, there's Giving Tuesday. Uh, that's supposed to make us all feel better about spending so much money on Friday and Monday, right? But we're not taught in our culture to be content, are we? It's, it's, it's been years since I've been in Africa but I was reminded, uh, even this week, uh, once again, I was pulling out some pictures. We were looking for some pictures, and I pulled out some pictures, and I was flipping through. Uh, and I remember, and there was a picture. I don't know who took the picture, but it was a picture of me with, um, oh, I can't remember his, why I can't remember his name. It slipped my mind. Oh, wish I could remember. But little slum village in Nairobi. Well, outside Nairobi. And I, there's a picture of me and he's interpreting for me as I'm preaching, and it just flooded my mind with memories. Here's, here's this little church in this slum village where literally there's sewage coming down the street. And as I'm leaving the church service, a drunk taps me on the shoulder, and the, the pastor pulls me over, and he says, don't talk to him. He's, he's, he's drunk. He's high on something. And he, he was warning me to, to get away because he could be dangerous. Well, he saw a rich white man, and he thought he could get something from me. I don't mean that in a racist way. I'm just saying he saw me as a white man who, obviously, there was dollar signs written all over me, and he, he wanted to get something from me, and the pastor there uh, was, was warning me. And it just reminded me of so many blessings. People who lived in those little huts and those little... Uh, shanty houses with aluminum and no, no glass, no running water, a hole in the ground for the bathroom. I mean, things that I had never seen before. And it's reminded me once again of how good God has been to me and how shameful I am for ever being discontented. Listening to some of the things that I'm hearing about what's going on in Israel where people in Israel are displaced because the threat to their homes to this day is still so great that they have moved away from the borderlines, especially up north where the Golan Heights. I think there's over 200,000 Jews that have been displaced. And they were describing what they saw out their windows when they were living near Gaza or what they experienced as Hezbollah sends over their rockets. And now they have to live now in a temporary quarters with other families and they have to be always aware of a siren. Some of them don't even know where some of their family members are. And I thought, wow, how good I've got it. And it was a reminder of the need to be content. And we are in a world that constantly is advertising why we should be discontent, why we need more. And we are so thankful for God providing our needs. And the word of God teaches us. The word of God gives us the right perspective on our stuff so that we can learn to be content. And we so have to battle that, don't we? 
in a world full of possessions and raising your status and reaching the next level and on and on it goes. There's so much pressure and competition, it seems, among even God's people to reach a, a new level of living, a new stratus, a new status, a new image. When God's word is our joy, it gives us the right perspective on possessions so that we can learn to be content with such things that we have. Paul said, I have abounded and I have been abased. I have learned in whatever state I am therewith to be content. Where did he get that? He got that from the truth of the word of God. He got that from his relationship with God through Jesus Christ, through the principles, the promises, and the commands of the word of God that he laid hold of. Reverence for God's word will give us the right perspective on persecution and of contentment. Jeremiah 15 and verse 16, Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and they were, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart, for I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. Job 23 and verse 12, Job said that the word of God was more than his necessary food. Right here in Psalm 119, going back to verse 72, we see the psalmist speaking of this in verse 72. The law of thy mouth is better unto me than thousands of gold and silver. Verse 111, thy testimonies have I taken as an heritage forever, for they are the rejoicing of my heart. May we have reverence for God's word, a love for God's word that gives us the right perspective. Also, we see that love for God's word produces a hatred of lies, a hatred for lying, for deception. Love for truth, went too far, love for truth should produce personal integrity and disdain for duplicity, hypocrisy, and falsehood. We realize that Hamas is a bunch of liars, right? We understand that. I wish our news media, wish a lot of other people in the world of academia would realize. Isn't it a shame when the news media just repeats Hamas's propaganda press releases? It's like what some of these deceived media people would promote when the USSR was, uh, in, was, was functioning as the, the communist regime that it was, and there would be people who would just repeat what the USSR would, would say without ever fact-checking, without ever double-checking. Hamas lies consistently, regularly, can I just say all the time. If their lips are moving, they're lying. It's like a politician nowadays, right? We have a president who is known for being a habitual liar, who makes up stories just about everywhere he goes, who I believe had to drop out of a presidential race at one point because of some sort of plagiarism or lying about something. Deception is considered the norm. First of all, there should be truth of life, but... Think about the fraud. Think about the deception that goes on in the business world, the corporate world, in all kinds of different areas of business. There is constantly pressure to cut corners, to cheat the system, 
to lie and to deceive. Sam Bankman Freed just went on trial and was, I think, convicted on all counts. What a fraud. What was it? Some sort of Ponzi scheme and moving money around and on and on it went. And he's even testifying that or stating that he was innocent, right? Even lying at his own trial. I don't know if he ever actually stood and he probably pled the fifth, but the lies. One of our missionaries that was here this past, or this year, I should say, uh, Colton Lee, uh, going to the um, Solomon Islands. We were talking to him at lunch and uh, when he was here, and he said, in the Solomon Islands, you are considered a better person in politics if you can lie and manipulate and deceive. He said, the better you are at lying, manipulating, and deceiving, the more honored and revered you are. They consider you a better politician. That's how corrupt it is in some places. The, the better you are at deceiving, the better you are at manipulating and undercutting and undermining, and it, the better you can lie to this group and deceive them so that you can get away with this, con, that's considered more honorable. <laughs> that, that's awful, isn't it? Islam teaches that it's okay to lie to an infidel. We can go on and on with the examples. Deception is just a normal part of life for many people. I, I would deal with students, and I told them, I said, you can lie to me, you can lie to your teacher, you can lie to your parents, but God knows. And sometimes I would get within a foot from their nose, I would look at them with fire in my eyes, and I would say, tell me the truth. But if you lie to me, God's going to deal with you. And I remember being caught lying. And I'm thankful for the spankings that I got for it to teach me to tell the truth. Lying. I hate being lied to. I understand why in Proverbs 6 we read that there are Six things that God hates, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. Proverbs 6, in verse 12, A naughty person, a wicked man, walketh with a froward mouth. He winketh with his eyes, he speaketh with his feet, he teacheth with his fingers. Three examples of deception. The winking, the speaking with his feet, and the teaching with his fingers are all symbolisms of deception, of lying, of trying to trick, of trying to manipulate, of trying to deceive. Frowardness is in his heart. He deviseth mischief continually. He soweth discord. Therefore shall his calamity come suddenly. Suddenly shall he be broken without remedy. These six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, Hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. God hates lying. We should too. Lying in life, lying in word, lying in action. So we see also that love for God's word produces a heart of praise and gratitude. We come back again to Psalm 119, and we look now at verse 164. Seven times, I, I didn't read again Psalm 160, 119, 163, 
as uh, Derek did a few moments ago, I hate and abhor lying, but thy law do I love. Verse 164, seven times a day do I praise thee because of thy righteous judgments. Now, there is some debate among the commentators as to what this number seven means. Well, we refer to seven as being symbolic sometimes, and seven being the number of perfection or the number of completeness. So it's possible that the number seven is used by the inspiration of God, as the psalmist writes, by the inspiration of God, seven times a day, referring to the fullness, the completeness. Throughout the day, I have a heart of praise. I want to have a heart of gratitude as I go about my life. I want it to be a habitual part of my thoughts and my words and my desires, that I'm grateful, that I'm thankful. Or it could possibly be, literally, the psalmist has marked seven times throughout the day to specifically give praise to the Lord. But either way, should we not have this kind of heart of gratitude? Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice to all things without murmurings and disputings. Maybe, it's be, maybe, maybe it should be a pattern, a habit of ours. Every time we back out of our garage as we look up and see the garage door closed, that we say, Lord, thank you for the house you've given me. Thank you for the vehicle that you've given me to drive. Maybe as we're checking our bank account and we're online and we're on our app on our phone and we're going through and we're complaining about the bills that we have to pay, and hey, at least we're not like Shohei Otani, who just signed a $700 million contract, okay, for 10 years. He's going to get $70 million a year, but California is going to take... 35 million of that in taxes. So he's going to come home with a 30, I mean, come on now, $34 million in his paycheck a year. That's still pretty good money, right? Okay, but the government's going to take 35 plus million dollars, according to the stat that I read. We complain about the government taking our money, right? We work hard, and then now you, what, what's, what, I don't know what the latest number is. You work until at least, what, the middle of April now? For the government and the rest of the year you can work for yourself something like that because of the number of taxes and they just want more they're not they're not done they, they've got their greedy sticky fingers out trying to find other ways to tax us do you realize that one of the bills that's out there one of the ideas is to tax gains so that unrealized gains they're trying to tax so if your stock goes up and you have an in, increase in your your net worth or your stocks go up so many thousands of dollars, they want to tax that. So do we get a refund when the stock market tanks and the, and the market goes under? Do we get a refund? Do we get a rebate from the government? Probably not, right? We complain about all that. But as we look at our accounts, as we move our money around, as we see our retirement funds, maybe that should be a time where we say, thank you, Lord. I don't deserve any of this. It all belongs to you. Maybe as our kids come into the house from another day of work or a job or from school, maybe we just say as they come in, as we greet them, thank you, Lord. Thank you for another day. Thank you for protecting them. Thank you for health, for strength. I couldn't help it all day Friday after getting the phone call from Diane. Couldn't help it all day on Friday as we were doing some traveling, coming home, and just my thought was, was on, you know, Lord, you've, you've blessed uh, Diane and Jerry with 54 years of marriage. 
We've only been married 23. I don't know if we'll ever make it to 54. I hope the Lord comes. But if the Lord gives us 54 years, praise be to God, that would be a joy. That'd be, that'd be wonderful. But 54 years. The life that I have right here today, the fact that I can go about my business, wanted to give thanks to the Lord. It was a renewed perspective, getting a phone call like that. And as shocked and as saddened as I was, as we were grieving throughout the day, it was a time of reflection and thanksgiving for God's goodness and his mercy. Love for God's word produces a heart of praise and gratitude. And then love for God's word keeps us from stumbling. Verse 165 is often misunderstood. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Literally, that word offend has to do with stumbling block causing to sin. I realize that the word of God, the right perspective, can cause us to not be offended easily about every little thing. But that's really not what this verse is teaching. This verse is really teaching about a holiness of life. When we love God's word and we seek to obey the word of God, then we will see the stumbling blocks of sin and we will avoid them. We will not be offended. We will not be stumbling into sin. Sin will not be having regular victory or causing us to stumble and fall. Now we are reminded that the just man falls seven times and rises up again. We're thankful for God's forgiveness and his faithfulness that he is just to forgive us of our sins as we confess, as we repent. But verse 165 is really talking about our love for God's word helping us to avoid sin, to avoid those stumbling blocks to avoid those things that would trip us up. That the word of God is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path so that we don't trip over the temptations of sin that come into our lives. A heart right with God has peace. Great peace have they which love thy law and nothing shall offend them. We need this peace. With all the, and I know there are biological Reasons for mental illness. My point isn't to get into psychology and all of that. But I can't help but wonder if some of the lack of peace and much of the mental illness, though there may be biological factors, I wonder sometimes if it isn't worse simply because people are living lives of guilt, have no peace with God, or believers who don't have the peace of God and therefore don't have peace with men, with others. How many Christians are living lives that are not right with God, that are in some state of backslidden or bad habits or whatever the case may be that are caught up in the things of the world like we talked about this morning and that James was warning us about. Where, where are we at in our relationship with God? I know for a fact that when there is not peace in our home, it often comes right back to me and my attitude and my treatment of my kids and my wife, my relationship with God, the way I'm handling situations. We as husbands, as fathers, many times we can set the tone for our home. We can set the direction for our home. It's a rebuke to me that if I'm ever out of sorts with the Lord, 
that I have an effect on a lot of other people. A heart right with God has peace. And then we come to this last section of the stanza. And we see that love for God's word brings an honesty of life. I know this comes back to even what we talked about a little bit earlier, the hatred of lies. So there's some overlap here. But notice what he says Verse 166, Lord, I have hope for thy salvation and done thy commandments. Notice in verse 167, kept thy testimonies. My soul hath kept thy testimonies. Verse 168, I have kept thy precepts and thy testimonies. And then the point in the outline comes from the end of verse 168, for all my ways are before thee. When we love God's word and live obediently, We will not be hypocritical. There is a definition of hypocrisy that is all of us some of the time. We all have failure to live up to the things that we say or not able to keep promises or commitments. We all are hypocrites in some way, shape, or form at some time. So we're all hypocrites in in some respects. But I'm talking about, of course, a life of hypocrisy, a double life, where our children will see that we are living one way in front of a certain group of people and a different way at home or around a different group of people. And that will drive a wedge into the hearts of our children when they see hypocrisy. And it will many times turn their hearts away from the Lord, especially if we, with our lips, we say one thing about God and then live a different way. So there is that aspect of not living a hypocritical life. But there's the aspect of the fear of the Lord here that I want us to kind of think about for a moment. An openness to our lives. That we understand that God sees. The psalmist is saying, I love your commandments. Verse 166, I have hoped for thy salvation and done thy commandments. I love them exceedingly. I have kept thy precepts. And he's saying at the end of the stanza, God, my ways are before thee. That's tough. We have to be transparent and authentic. And we have to sometimes with our spouse, with our children, with the people that love us the most, who know us so well, only God knows us entirely, of course, But there are times where we have to just be open and honest, first of all, before God. And then we have to do so with a spouse, with maybe our own children who we know that we haven't done things a certain way and haven't done things right. And we have to say, please forgive me. Hey, mom and dad did this. We said this. We want to get this right. We want to fix this. We want to go a different direction. We were wrong here. Lots of different applications. But notice what we read in Proverbs 5 and verse 21 that reflects upon what the psalmist is saying in verse 168. For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he pondereth all his goings. God knows us. There might be things we're able to hide from people. Paul writes about preachers who some some men, their sins go before them, some follow after And we can think of somebody like a Ravi Zacharias who his sins followed after. Things that were revealed about his life that 
people didn't know. There are other people who we can think of, and I won't name names necessarily, but who have been caught in some sort of scandal, able to hide it for a certain time, for a little while, from maybe their church or from a group of people, but eventually the truth comes out. God knows the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord. Proverbs 28 and verse 1. The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. What is he saying? The wicked flee when no man pursueth. The wicked have a guilty conscience. They're running. They know that they're in trouble. But instead of going to God and getting right with God and repenting of their sin, they're running, trying to get away from God. But the righteous are bold as a lion. Their conscience is clean. They're not perfect, but they're right with God. Sins are confessed, trying to live for the Lord, keeping short sin accounts. Proverbs 26 and verse 2, As the bird by wandering, as the swallow by flying, so the curse causeless shall not come. In other words, does the accusation stick? If the dart is thrown, will it stick? Is there really... A place in our life where, hmm, yeah, I might be 90, 95% right, but boy, that one spot on the dartboard, it sticks and it hurts. Am I willing to get that right? But it's also talking about a pattern of life where the accusations are true. The pattern of life is such that it's a pattern of unrighteousness and disobedience. Does that accusation stick? Second Chronicles 16 and verse 9, I believe it was Asa who was the king. And he had obeyed God and not partnered up. I believe it was with the Ethiopians, maybe the Egyptians. Uh, I, I forget now from Second Chronicles 16 in my study. I, I, I'm getting my, my nations and, and names mixed up. But I believe it was Asa was the king. He had obeyed the Lord and not partnered up with the Ethiopians, the Egyptians. But then when there was another enemy coming, he decided not to trust the Lord this time. And he began to compromise and God rebuked him. And this is part of the rebuke for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro through the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Where's our heart? Is our heart perfect toward the Lord? He ultimately knows our heart. Where's our heart tonight? We could also go to Proverbs 22 and verse number 12 as we finish up this evening. Proverbs 22 and verse number 12. The eyes of the Lord preserve knowledge, and he overthroweth the words of the transgressor. And then 1 Peter 3, 1 Peter 3, looking ahead to the New Testament, 1 Peter 3, and verse number 12. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Isn't it a joy to be right with God? We didn't get to it this morning in James 4, but draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. God wants us to be close to him. He's not backing away. He's not running around trying to avoid us. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. If there's any distance between us and God, it's because of us. It's because we have distanced ourselves from him because of our sin, because of our disregard of his ways, because of disobedience. But there is hopefulness, there is hopefulness to the obedient life, while a sinful lifestyle causes regret, shame, and fear. 
My soul hath kept thy testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I have kept thy precepts and thy testimonies, for all my ways are before thee. May we have that testimony that the psalmist has in this psalm, in this stanza tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these wonderful truths, Lord, that remind us of the greatness of who you are, that you know us, that you know our hearts. And Lord, we might be able to shift things around in our lives and try to hide things from other people and to live a, a different life one place than we do the other. But Lord, may we be open and honest before you. And in the fear of God and in love for your word, Lord, may we bow in humble submission and be able to say, like the psalmist says here in verse 168, for all my ways are before thee. And Lord, may we live in light of that and be truly grateful, truly thankful, and to have a heart of praise and to have a contentment to our lives as we rejoice in you and your goodness to us and in who you are and what you have provided for us through your son, Jesus Christ. And as we look ahead 